Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Well, I invite you to turn this morning in your Bibles to the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Judges can be found after Joshua and before Ruth and Samuel and Kings. And we'll be starting a new series in the book of Judges that will take us well in to the new year here. And just to give us some context, you'll remember that in the history of God's people, the exodus from Egypt and the entrance into the promised land was a foundational event, both in the identity of Israel as a people, but also in God's covenant with them. Now, if you fast forward a a number of years later, the kings of Israel, especially King David and the promise of a Messiah that would sit on David's throne, is another significant moment in Israel's history. But in between the leadership of Joshua and entering the promised land and the kings of Israel who rule, there's a period of about 350 years. And the book of Judges describes a key portion of Israel's history during that time frame. Now the book of Judges is filled with a number of dramatic and interesting and at times shocking stories. Think of the book of Judges as a treasure trove of every elementary school boy's favorite Bible stories. You've got the thumbless and toeless kings and fat kings and death by tent peg and all sorts of things that thrill your mind as a young child. But through these crazy stories, there are two main goals that I have for us as a congregation as we work through the book of Judges. The first is that this book is a case study and the generational consequences of small disobediences that lead to whole-scale apostasy. This book is a real-life example of what happens when everyone does what is right in their eyes rather than following the Lord. And for those of us who live in a, a culture today where doing what is right in your eyes is not only encouraged, but is actually considered the essence of freedom and personhood, We need to see the dangers and the consequences of allowing such a sinful mindset to gain a foothold in our hearts among us. That's our first goal. But the second goal, perhaps even more important, the unifying theme of the book of Judges is not actually the existence of judges. The unifying theme of this book is the faithfulness, the justice, and the mercy of God. And my hope is that this study in the the book of Judges will put His character clearly on display for us so that we are encouraged as we see who He is and the way He has worked in and for His people. So those are my goals for our series in Judges. But as we turn to Judges 1, let's remember what's happening here. Judges chapter 1 verse 1 picks up right where the book of Joshua left off. Joshua charged the people of Israel to renew their covenant with the Lord and to choose this day whom they will serve. And after Israel declared that they would serve and obey the Lord, Joshua died in the last verses of the book. 
Joshua, or excuse me, Judges 1-1 then picks up with Joshua's death, followed by Israel's willingness to complete the conquest of the land of Canaan. Now just as a reminder also on where we are with the conquest of the land of Canaan, the book of Joshua described for us how Joshua led the people of Israel over the Jordan into the promised land and then won, by God's strength, a series of key victories that broke the strength of the Canaanites. He led them to defeat Jericho and Ai and five kings in the center of the promised land. Then he took them south where they defeated an alliance of kings in the southern area of the promised land. And then they marched north and defeated an alliance of kings in the northern province of the land. And so you can imagine Joshua taking this quick blitzkrieg, if you will, center south and north, breaking the strength of the Canaanite kings. But now what's left for the people of Israel is to go tribe by tribe inheritance by inheritance, city by city, to take possession of the land and to drive out the Canaanites who are still living there. And it's that process which takes place over a number of years that's summarized here in Judges chapter 1. So let's jump in and read together. This is a longer portion than we sometimes read, but let's read Judges chapter 1 together. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went up with him. And then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. Then they found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. Afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the lowland. Judah went up against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, And they defeated Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath-Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath-Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa my daughter for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it, and he gave him Aksa his daughter for a wife. And when she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simon, Simeon, his brother, And they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. 
Judah captured also Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had iron, uh, chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scattered out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please, show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz, and that is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. And when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal, So the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Ahalab, or of Akzib, or of Helba, or Aphek, or Rehab. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. And Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. And the Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Harris, in Ajalon, in Shalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah and upward. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, this chapter of your word that you've given to us, we pray that you would show us your character and stir our hearts to love you and follow you and to trust you. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Back in seventh grade, I completed a year-long course in geography. We studied the countries and the capitals and the land features of the world, a continent, by continent. And in my experience, as we studied geography, there was a part of geography that I loved. It was studying the cultures and and the history and things about different areas of the world, and it was also getting a big picture of how the world fit together. But then there was also the part of geography that was much less fun. It was the laborious process of stuffing one name after another into our brains, trying to memorize capital and country and city and and keeping it all firm in in our minds. And when we come to Judges chapter 1 this morning, Judges 1 may seem more like that laborious list of cities in Israel. It may seem like an ancient geography class that's majoring on the city names and less on the things we actually want to know about. 
But that's not actually the case. Because Judges 1 is not primarily taking us on a tour of Canaan's cities. It's taking us on a tour of God's character and of Israel's hearts. And the central picture that emerges from this tour is that God's power and presence enable our obedience. But relying on our own strength and understanding leads to a steady decline into disobedience. So I want to look at that together. And first we'll take a look at Israel's good start and reliance on God's power and presence in verses 1 through 18. As the story of Judges begins, the leaders of Israel took the task of possessing the land and driving out its inhabitants. They began by obeying the Lord's commands. And they started by turning to the Lord and inquiring of Him, who shall go up first into their inheritance? And the Lord tells Judah to go up first, promising, I have given the land into His hand. The Lord's power and presence are with them, declaring that as they follow His word, the land will be theirs. And in short order, in fulfillment of his promise, Judah, with the help of his brother Simeon, defeats the Canaanites and Perizzites with their king Adonai Bezek in verses 4 to 6. Then they go on and capture Jerusalem in verse 8. They defeat cities in the hill country in the Negev in verses 10 through 17. The the hill country in the Negev would have been the, the eastern portion of their inheritance all the way down from north to south. Then they move toward the west into the lowlands in the western portion of their inheritance in verse 18 and capture a number of its cities. So that halfway through the chapter, we see that in reliance on God's power and presence with them, Judah obeys the Lord and God is faithful to his word and they take possession of the land. Now, this is the big picture. But the author, the narrator here, pauses to give us more details on three specific anecdotes. And each of these is important for us to pause and reflect on briefly. Because each anecdote tells us something about God's character and Israel's obedience. So anecdote number one comes in verses 6 and 7 when we meet Adonai Bezek, who is defeated and removed of his thumbs and big toes. Now, it's easy for us to be a bit uncomfortable with this. What kind of God is okay with his people going and chopping off fingers and big toes of the people they conquer? Or maybe step back even from that and we're uncomfortable even with the fact that God has told his people to go into a land and to, to take possession of someone else's land. To, to grab their land, to kill groups of people. Maybe it even feels to us like colonialism or something along those lines. And the problem though is that we're thinking about this question like 21st centuriers. There's uh, commentator Dale Ralph Davis who snidely remarked, he said, if only the Canaanites knew how much emotional sympathy they got from Western readers in the 21st century, thinking from their mindset rather than a biblical one. Because what we have in our minds is this nice picture of people minding their own business when God commands an invading army to wipe them out. But notice something very important in verse 7. Adonai Bezek speaks, and it becomes clear that the defeated Canaanite king himself has no problem with God's command or what Israel has done, but recognizes it as God's perfect justice. 
He says, I did this to 70 kings, and as I have done to others, now God has done to me. And if you think back to the book of Deuteronomy, what you would find is that the residents in Canaan were not nice people sitting in their suburban houses. They were known for their utter evil and perverse wickedness, such that God told Israel in Deuteronomy 9, don't think that I'm driving out these nations because you're so great. It's because of the extent of their wickedness that demands my justice that they be destroyed. And so what God is calling his people here to do is to be instruments of his divine justice that is demanded by the lives and the history of the people dwelling in Canaan. And in God's perfect sovereignty, Israel carries out his justice in a way that also perfectly fulfills his promises of the land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this first anecdote puts on display God's sovereign faithfulness and justice to his people, to his promises, and to the wickedness of the people of the land. Well, the next anecdote we need to look at comes in verse 10. It's the battle against Hebron. And we're told that in order to defeat Hebron, Israel had to defeat three guys named Shishai, Ahimah, and and Talmai. Now, those names might not mean much to us, but if you look down in verse 20 you'll find that these three guys were, in fact, the three sons of Anak. Now, maybe you say, well, that still doesn't mean much to me. But if you were to flip back to Numbers chapter 13, you would find that when the spies of Israel went into the land of Canaan, one of the main reasons they said to the rest of the Israelites, we can't go into this land, God's promise can't be fulfilled, we've got to turn and run, is because they saw the sons of Anak. These guys were part of the reason that the spies said, we, got, we can't fulfill what God told us to do. But Caleb, and you remember from Numbers 13 and 14, Caleb was one of the two spies who said, no, no, we can fulfill God's commands. We can go into the promised land if God is with us. Caleb now is the one who leads the attack on Hebron and defeats the three sons of Anak and takes the city just as God had promised An unclear display here is the sufficiency of God's strength and help for whatever he calls people to do. And it is certainly true that at times God calls his people to do difficult things. There are times that God calls his people to suffering, to disappointment. There are even times when God calls his people to do or to endure things that seem hopeless and overwhelming. And maybe some of you have faced situations, maybe even this week, that feel just like that. But this week's passage and this anecdote justifies the call of Proverbs 3 that we saw last week to trust the Lord with our whole hearts and not lean on our own understanding. For here again we have a picture of how beyond adequate, how fully sufficient God's power and presence are for His people, for what He calls us to do. Well, then we have anecdote number three in verses 12 through 15. It's a, it's a romance. Maybe you look at this and say, well, how can you call that a romance? It's a guy promising his daughter as a military prize to whoever takes the city. But again, if that's what you're thinking, you're thinking as if you're from the 21st century. And we need to read this story like an Israelite would read it. So an Israelite would read the story this way. 
Caleb knows that God has called his people to take these cities. He has no doubt that they will be taken by the Lord's power. But he wants for his daughter a husband who fears the Lord and who obeys him with courage, who is eager to inherit the land that God has promised to his people. And so he calls for a man to step out in faithful obedience and secures that man for his daughter's husband. We're going to see plenty of stories in the book of Judges of men who sacrifice the interests of daughters and women in their lives. Here is a man who steps out in faith and secures a godly husband for his daughter, Aksa. And Aksa herself is shown to be a woman of faith in this anecdote who trusts God's promise and values the blessing of the land God has given him so that she asks for an inheritance and for springs of water that will enable her family to flourish in the inheritance that God gives her family for generations to come. She demonstrates just the kind of attitude that honors the Lord and His promises. And so here this anecdote is a story of father and son-in-law and daughter who highlight what it looks like to enter the promised land and settle in it as God intended in faithful and trusting obedience to Him. And so as we come through these anecdotes, as we come to verse 19, we see that God's power and presence have been with Israel that they have obeyed his word, such that verse 19 can say, and the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. It is an excellent beginning to the story. God was utterly enough for whatever he called Israel to do. But just as we're reveling in the beauty of this story, verse 19 throws in an unexpected comment that should set off alarm bells in your mind and tell you that this story is about to head downward. Because the narrative, after saying, and the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country, then says, but he couldn't drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had iron chariots. Now you need to hear the comment from the narrator here dripping with sarcasm. Because do you mean to tell me that God, who just a few years before had defeated the entire Egyptian army with 600 of their chariots, God, who with a word had caused the walls of Jericho to fall down flat on their own. God, who had just defeated the three sons of Anak. God, who had caused the sun to stand still for Joshua so that he could defeat the alliance of northern kings, just couldn't overcome some Palestinian iron chariots. Of course not. The issue was not God. The issue is that Judah did not fully obey the Lord's command to drive out the inhabitants of the land. Either they began to rely on themselves instead of the Lord and lost the battle, or they relied on their own understanding and thought, well, of course, we can't defeat chariots of iron and didn't even go to the battle. Or they grew complacent, happy with the progress they'd made and stopped short of full obedience to the Lord. Now, we might hope that this is just an oversight that would be corrected and repented of, but verse 21 adds that the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem either. Now, if you've been reading along carefully with us, this might raise a textual question in your minds, because back in verse 8, the text told us that the men of Judah defeated Jerusalem. Why do the Benjamites have to fight against Jerusalem again here in verse 21? There's a number of various good explanations to this question. We just don't have enough information in the text to know which is true, but Likely, it's some uh, semblance of the fact that this text takes place over a number of years 
And likely Judah defeated Jerusalem, but that moved south from the rest of their territory, and the Jebusites moved in. And Jerusalem being right on the territory borderline of Benjamin and Judah, uh, Benjamin needed to throw out the Jebusites again several years later. But don't get focused on the textual question. The spiritual one is the most important. Because here we have Benjamin, a second tribe of Israel, leaving a city chock full of Canaanites living right in the middle of their inheritance, in direct disobedience to God's command. And remember that God's commands are not burdensome. This is not an unreasonable command of the Lord. The command to drive out all the inhabitants of the land was a command for Israel's good and their protection. Remember Exodus 23, 31, God said to Israel, I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them or their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. And Joshua, right before he died in Joshua 23, 11, said, Be very careful to love the Lord your God. For if you associate with these nations, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive them out before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish off this good ground that the Lord has given you. So the commands of the Lord were for the good of Israel, for their protection. And yet Israel disobeys a clear command and are now in danger of temptation, sin, and judgment themselves. But the downward spiral really picks up pace in verse 27. In verses 27 through 30, we find that Manasseh, Ephraim, and Zebulun all overcame the inhabitants of their territory, but they didn't drive them out. They allowed them to live among them and serve as forced labor. Now, forced labor seems like a great deal. After all, with forced labor, Israel's still in charge. Israel's the one who has the upper hand. And it makes life a lot easier to have forced labor for you. Seems like a great solution, except that it's disobedience. And we find that now three more tribes have failed to deliver God's justice on the Canaanites and are allowing the Canaanites to live right among their tribes. But then verses 31 through 33 get even a little bit worse. Asher and Naphtali also fail to drive out the inhabitants of their territory, but there's an important shift in language that tells us that the downward spiral is continuing. Because in verses 27 through 30, the Canaanites were allowed to live among Israel. Clearly, Israel had control of most of the land, and the Canaanites lived among them. But if you notice verses 31 through 33, it says Asher and Naphtali lived among the Canaanites. In other words, their obedience now here was so half-hearted that God's people are the minority. The Canaanites are still the one largely in possession of the land instead of the other way around. And Asher and Naphtali are living in their midst. And then we come to verse 34 and hit rock bottom as, as the tribe of Dan doesn't even get into most of his territory. They make a march north only to be turned back. And we receive such an indictment on the lack of resolve for God's people when it says that the Amorites wouldn't allow Dan to come down into their territory. What power do the Amorites have to not allow God's people to come into the area God has told them to go unless God's people have abandoned the Lord and are no longer obeying Him? 
And so in the second half of this chapter, we have this downward trend from Judah and Benjamin's almost obedience to Manasseh, Ephraim, and Zebulun's partial obedience to Asher and Naphtali's slim obedience to Dan's utter failure to take the land the Lord had given them. So from the good start, we come to the end of chapter 1 and see this failed obedience. But as we come to the end, I think there are two important lessons for us as God's people from this chapter. First, this story reminds us that disobedience often starts small. Disobedience often starts with decisions that seem very reasonable, that seem to make a lot of sense. Maybe they start with a decision that's, yes, it's not exactly what God would want, but it's made in the context of a lot of other obedience. And yet that decision elevates our priorities for our lives. It elevates what we want and how we think. And it's a decision that leads us a step further from the Lord in disobedience to His Word. There are so many ways for us to justify these disobediences. Even though I think most of us know that salvation does not come from doing more good things than bad things, it's still so easy for us to justify small disobediences given how many other ways we're obeying. It's so easy to justify lowering God in our priority list in some certain areas given that we've elevated Him in certain others. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis notes that if we take Judges chapter 1 as a whole, it does leave us with the impression that Israel is in control of most of Canaan. And they've made some reasonable and understandable decisions in the process. We're not going to fight against iron chariots. We'll employ some forced labor. But what might appear to be practical success, what might look like things are going well from outward appearance, that most things have been done in obedience, is a spiritual failure because it has left undone what God had commanded. It is in the end only partial obedience. And the reality is, just like we tell all of our children when we say, you should go clean your room right now, and they start cleaning their room and do a great job cleaning 60% of their room, and then they go off and do their own thing, and we say, partial obedience is still disobedience. You didn't obey me. And Tim Keller puts it another way. He said, halfway discipleship is no discipleship at all. And so the warning for each of us is not to try to take some sort of big picture look at our life and see if in general we're doing the things we ought to be doing. It's instead to pray earnestly with the psalmist. Search me, O God, and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So my prayer is that each one of us as we see this text and the way small disobediences lead down a road to greater and greater disobedience to the Lord, would examine our hearts and repent of any sin that we see, no matter how small, so that disobedience does not gain a foothold in our lives. There's a second lesson here. I think the second lesson is that it is of only small importance how we begin. What is of greater importance is how we finished. See, Judah started well. For 18 verses, we saw obedience to the Lord and dependence upon His strength and success in taking over the land. But then they either began to be apathetic or they relied on themselves and they finished by leaving much obedience undone. You know, how many of us have known two people 
maybe in high school or college or as young adults, and one went to youth group, was involved in missions trips, seeking the Lord. The other wanted nothing to do with church, was living a life of sexual sin and wanted nothing to do with God. And yet 30 years later, what do we see? But the one who had begun well has now turned from the Lord and wanted nothing to do with Him. The one who had wanted nothing to do with God has now been convicted of their sin and turned in faith and repentance to trust Christ and His walking with Him. It's not just true of individuals, though. It's also true of churches. How many churches have started well but then are waylaid by their desire for success rather than commitment to shepherding God's people? How many of us start something with good intentions only to fall back into sinful habits and spiritual apathies? And so the question for us is not how we've started, but how we end. And my prayer for myself and for us as a congregation is that the slow decline from small disobediences to widespread self-reliance and disregard for God that characterizes Israel in Judges chapter 1 would not be our story. But that instead we would fix our eyes on our God through faith in Jesus Christ and we might be able to say with Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Of course, if we're honest... We all do know our failures, don't we? We all do see the sins, whether it's small disobediences or great. We know how little strength we have to persevere to the end. But when we look to our God, we see not only the extent of our sinfulness, we also see a God who is more than sufficient for anyone who will fix their eyes on Him. And if God's people found the Lord to be sufficient when they attacked Adonai Bezek, if God's people found the Lord to be sufficient when they went against the sons of Anak, how much more is our God now sufficient for all that we need now that He has sent His only Son, Jesus, to die on the cross, to take the punishment that our sins deserved, to rise again from the dead that He might give us life, who has credited us with the righteousness of His Son, Jesus, who has brought us to Himself to be adopted as His sons and daughters, who has changed our hearts to remake us more and more into His image until the last day when we will be in glory with Him forever. How much more is that God sufficient for all our needs if we will look to Him in faith? And whether you are hearing this glorious news for the thousandth time this morning, or whether maybe for the first time this morning, in a new way, You are realizing the offer of the gospel for what your heart needs. My prayer is that each one of us would rest firmly in faith on this all-sufficient God who is more than adequate for all our needs and may persevere to the end in faith and obedience in Him, our great God and Savior. Let's pray. Father, we come to You in this text this morning. We rejoice when we see obedience done in faith at the way that you are more than adequate for everything you call your people to. We rejoice at the example of Caleb and Othniel and Aksa who live in faith and obedience with the strength you provide. We also see the warning 
the warning of relying on ourselves, of leaving some obedience undone, of small disobediences that spread and leave temptation and sin and danger to our souls. And how I pray, Father, that this morning each one of us would eagerly examine our hearts and our lives and pray that you would forgive what sin we find and that we would turn from it and that you would lead us in the way of everlasting life. And how I pray that we would fix our eyes on Christ and see in him the one who is more than sufficient to take our sins and bring us back to reconciliation with our God. And how I pray that you would also be the one on which we fix our gaze and that your spirit would strengthen us to follow you in obedience day after day for the glory of your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.